Dear Father in heaven, we are so thankful that we can gather together this evening. We thank you for the present freedoms that we enjoy, uh, for the many blessings that you bestowed upon us. We're thankful that we can have this time uh, to set aside, to gather together in fellowship and in the study of your word. And Father, we just pray this evening as we take this time to continue our study on the subject of soteriology. Uh, that this will be a time of uh, fruitful understanding, that we will uh, be able to focus on the uh, passages that you would have us to focus on, that we will be able to glean the truths that you would have us to understand, that we might understand you better, and that we might also know how to properly relate to you uh, by our daily walk with you. Father, we pray that we will be challenged by these things. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. All right, and I'm going to switch over to Facebook Live here, so we'll get that uh, going as well. Uh, Paste that in there. Bear with me a moment while I talk to myself and get this going. It's always a transition when I transition over. Dan is my tech guy over here. He's 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 in command center uh, for the ship, so he's. Well, someday you might. Um, anyway, so he's uh, going to let me know if we're live here. So The notes link are still the same, right? Say what? The notes link is still the same? Uh, yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir, for the moment it is. Um, and I meant to send you a new link, but that's all right. All right, so we'll get switched over here, and I'm going to pull up my uh, <coughs> Logos notes here so we can get started with that. I love Logos. Logos has been a really uh, big help to me. Uh, back in 2004, I was halfway through my Master of Divinity degree, and uh, Logos was just starting out, and I wound up buying. Uh, we got a 50% break on Logos, and so I wound up buying Logos Bible Software. Bought the gold version. Got it half off for $350 uh, when I was at Southwestern Seminary. And Anyway, now to buy that same version probably run me about $10,000. Uh, but over the years, you know, you, you, I've been able to invest in books in my digital library. And, uh, you know, you wind up investing, you know, I mean, it's easy to drop $10,000 uh, over a period of time and to have those books. But you need them because books are uh, research books, uh, good history works, theology works, commentaries, dictionaries. Uh, these things are to a, a pastor what tools are to a mechanic. I have a brother-in-law lives up in uh, Lubbock, Texas, and he's uh, been a mechanic for probably 30-plus years, a very, very bright man, uh, knows cars in and out. And he's got so many tools. I mean, he probably has over $100,000 in tools. I would not be surprised with the amount of sets. But he needs all those to be able to deal with whatever comes in the door. Well, well, that's the way it is with a pastor. When a pastor has a large library, that's, uh, that's, that's his tool set that he constantly goes to. Okay, well, enough about that. So we're going to get into talking about the doctrine of grace this evening. We are studying soteriology. Uh, soteriology is the study of salvation. It derives from two Greek words, soter, which means savior, and logos, which means the study of or a word about something. And so we are, I think, about 30 lessons into this, if I remember correctly, and I'm a little bit behind on my videos. I haven't had time to do that. I try to do that in the mornings when I get up around 2 a.m., because that's usually when I get up for my study time for about four hours. And sometimes I'll try to make videos during that time, but uh, lately I've been uh, studying other things, so I haven't had time for that. 
But in our current section, we are looking at biblical terminology related to soteriology. Again, biblical terminology related to soteriology. And so uh, we're looking at certain words. Uh, now, I keep revising my notes because I keep you know, making little changes here and there, and I'm still continuing to research this subject. On my overall body of notes, I think I'm up to about 185 pages. And I'm expecting that by the time I finish, I'll probably have somewhere close to 300-ish, somewhere in there. We'll just see how that looks towards the end, but I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm still in study mode. So I'm constantly sending out revised versions of my notes. All right, so tonight we're going to talk about grace. Tonight we're going to talk about grace. And uh, grace is a subject that you find all throughout the Bible. And I love grace. Uh, uh, I'm a huge proponent of grace. And I'll tell you, it was something that, that doesn't come automatically in the life of the Christian. Grace, uh, like any doctrine in the Bible, like anything in the Christian life, it has to be taught because you're not going to grab a six-pack of soda and go sit under a tree somewhere or, you know, Coca-Cola or whatever, go sit under a tree somewhere and just come up with this idea of grace. That's, that's not how it works. It's like anything else. It has to be taught. It has to be communicated. Uh, and Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer wrote a wonderful, wonderful book on grace, and it's uh, one of the benchmark works, I think, on the subject of grace. Dr. Charles Ryrie also wrote a book on grace, and, and I enjoy his work, and I've studied different over the years. Uh, but the subject of grace is something that has really uh, warmed me over the years and continues to. Very, very important doctrine. I think one of the people that probably had the biggest impact on me on the subject of grace was Pastor Chester McCauley, uh, who passed away a, a few years back. But that man was an absolute godsend. I bet I probably went through about 3,000 hours of his expositional, exegetical lessons as well. And a fabulous, fabulous Bible teacher, Chester McCauley, was just phenomenal. And, uh, and so he was the one, I think, that probably really opened up this, the concept of grace to me uh, more than anyone else. And so I owe a, a debt of gratitude to him, uh, a sense of appreciation for, for his ministry as well. So let's, uh, let's talk about grace in tonight's study. And we'll look at a few words, and we'll chase down some scripture references. And again, this is, this is just an overview. We're, we're not spending on any one of these doctrines that I'm hitting. I'm just giving an overview of it. So I'm presenting the material usually in about a one-hour lesson. Last week, we covered the doctrine of forgiveness. And I'm covering these alphabetically, by the way. And so tonight, we're, we're picking up on the subject of grace uh, but again, this is this is not a deep, deep dive. Now, at some future time, I may do that. Once we get through with soteriology, once we've hit about 100 lessons or so on soteriology, and I feel like I've communicated it effectively, at least, you know, to a certain depth, uh, we may hit some other doc. We may, we may jump into grace or something else at a future time, so we'll see. So uh, when we think about grace, the Hebrew noun chen appears 69 times uh, in the Old Testament, and is commonly translated as favor, is commonly translated as favor. By the way, anytime somebody does uh, a, a word study, uh, what they will do is they will look up every single occurrence of that word in the Bible. Now, like when I did my doctoral dissertation, I did it on God's attribute of righteousness, and so what that meant was that I had to go through every passage in the Old Testament and the New Testament 
and I had to look at every single word in the Hebrew and Greek, uh, tzaddik, uh, dekayasune, dekayao. Uh, I had to look at all the Hebrew and Greek words related to the subject of righteousness. And, uh, and so that was my dissertation. But you have to chase it down. But as you chase it down, it's in the looking at the actual passages where you pull up all these verses that you begin to pick up on patterns, patterns. And by the way, uh, words uh, are not always locked into a single meaning. Sometimes words do have a technical meaning where it means one thing and only one thing. But generally, when you're, when you're doing a word study, what you will find is that words have a semantic range, a semantic range. And what that means is, is that there's going to be slight nuances to the meaning of a word depending on its context. And context is always what determines the meaning of a word. Context is always what determines the meaning of a word. And so we're going to look at some words tonight, you know, most notably grace, but we're going to look at how even grace has some nuanced meanings to it, depending upon how you look at it. But for example, if you look at Genesis 6, 8, we see here where it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And here we have the use of the Hebrew noun chen. And I'm trying to get that guttural in there because that Hebrew, and I, you know, spent, you know, nearly four years studying Hebrew, and I still have a hard time. Uh, pronouncing some of the words, because you've got to get that, that, that guttural in there. And so you have this chen, is the word that appears there. And it means that Noah basically found grace, uh, he, 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 that God gave him grace. Uh, so he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And, uh, and so you find where uh, grace extends as a top-down doctrine, as a top-down doctrine from God to man. But you also find passages um, uh, like Genesis 19, 19, where you see where grace or favor can be extended from one person to another. And so it says, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. Again, this use of the same word, but rather than it being a vertical uh, relationship, it's a horizontal. So it's, it's one person extending uh, favor to another. Uh, or Exodus twelve thirty six. Uh, which reads here, it says, The Lord had given the people uh, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Now here you have God working in the heart of the Egyptians, basically to demonstrate favor towards the Israelites. And in this particular instance, uh, it says, So that they let them have their request, thus they plundered the Egyptians. And so as the Israelites were leaving Egypt at the time of the Exodus, uh, God granted the, his people favor. And he did that again by working in the hearts of the Egyptians so that they would give over uh, their wealth to them. And so they wound up basically taking all the wealth of Egypt. And by the time God was done with Egypt, Egypt really had been reduced to a third world country because they had been destroyed economically uh, with the plagues that came down upon them. They had been destroyed uh, politically. Uh, when Pharaoh died in the sea, they'd been, they'd been destroyed militarily because his uh, chariots had been destroyed in the sea as well. And they had been destroyed uh, again economically uh, when they plundered them of their wealth. And really what the, what the uh, Israelites were getting at that point, uh, if, you, if you really want to think about it, is they were getting 400 years of back pay. Uh, for all their time of service, of, of, being, of being slaves. And so they were get, God was sure that they were going to get their back pay by the time they left out 
of Egypt. But here you see where, again, grace or favor can be from God to man. It can be from, from person to person. And then, of course, God can work in the hearts of other people to extend favor towards his people. And that's just, uh, just sort of some quick observations of grace. Uh, again, looking at the Hebrew noun chen here. You also have the Hebrew verb chanan, and this appears 56 times uh, in the Old Testament and is commonly translated as gracious, as gracious. And so here uh, it says, and he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, uh, here talking about Joseph, uh, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you said, uh, of whom you spoke to me? And he said, may God be gracious to you. Uh, my son. And so here we see the use of the term gracious. And what that speaks of is in one sense part of the disposition that one person has towards another person of being gracious. Uh, and then also we've, what's interesting is you find some of God's attributes work together. For example, God's loyal or faithful love uh, from the Hebrew word chesed, uh, which is uh, often used in connection with his demonstrations of grace. And, uh, and chesed, by the way, for many years uh, in the older translations was just translated as just love. But the word really connotes the idea of loyalty uh, or faithful, or we might even say commitment, love, because that's what it communicates. But notice in the Psalm 51.1, it says, Be gracious to me, O God, notice, according to your loving kindness, according to your loving kindness. And so here uh, we see the use of the Hebrew Hanan uh, in connection with God's attribute of love. And by the way, you see that also with righteousness and justice, that righteousness and justice uh, work very much together, uh, almost in tandem with each other. And uh, I've talked about that before, so we won't, we won't chase that down. But then when we look into the New Testament which is where grace really takes off. Grace really becomes more pronounced by the time you begin to jump into the New Testament. Now, the Greek word uh, for grace uh, is the Greek word kadis. Kadis, it's C-H-A-R-I-S, kadis. And it appears 155 times in the Greek New Testament. Now, now I think the thing that really caught my attention when I was really studying this, when I was looking uh, at uh, a number of passages, is that it appears 155 times in the New Testament, and Paul gobbles up that word 130 times. Now, you know what that tells me? It tells me Paul was a man of grace, that he thought and he communicated grace more than any other teacher, because again, out of the 155 occurrences, again, Paul gobbles up that word 130 times. That's, that's quite amazing, and that tells me that Paul is a grace man. So the word grace, the Greek word kadis, again appears 155 times in the New Testament and is most commonly translated grace or favor. And we see it in passages like 1 John 1 14, which says, and the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, or we saw his glory, as a glory is of the only begotten, uh, from the Father, notice, full of grace and truth. And there we see the use of the word kadis there, translated as favor, or excuse me, as grace. Now over in Romans 4.4, 4, we see the same word, uh, kadis, but here is translated favor. 
in Romans 4, 4, it says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. And favor there being our Greek word, kodos again. And, uh, but it communicates the idea of, of grace or a gift. Uh, but that's how it is most commonly translated. Now, there are, some, there are some passages where the translators do some kind of strange stuff with the word, with kodos, and I've never quite wrapped my brain around why they do that, but we may look at one or two of those here in a little bit. Now, what's interesting is the word is also used to express thanks. It's used to express thanks. For example, in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven, Paul says, But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And there the word thanks translates our Greek noun, kodos. And so the word is used uh, to connote this idea of gratitude, of, of thankfulness. And here it is specifically towards God. You also find it in 2 Corinthians 9.15 where Paul says again, thanks be to God. Again, here we see the use of the Greek noun, kodos. So the word uh, is used to express thankfulness. Uh, Now, interestingly, the word is also used uh, to describe something that is attractive, something that is attractive, and most notably speech. For example, in Luke chapter 4, verse 22, you have a passage here where Jesus is speaking. uh, Let me back up here. And uh, he's reading a passage of Scripture, and he starts in verse 18. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then it says, And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say, uh, he began to say to them, "Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." But notice verse twenty-two. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words, which were falling from his lips, at the gracious words. Now there's our Greek word kodos, and so here in the context, it has the idea of something attractive something that is beautiful to behold. And, uh, and here it speaks of the attractiveness of the speech itself, of the Lord's words. And there was something about his presentation that when they listened to it, they were, they were taken by it. And, uh, and they were just amazed at the graciousness of his words. And by the way, uh, Paul tells us in Colossians 4, 6, communicates this same idea. Let your speech always be with grace. Cottus, let your speech always be with grace. And it's the idea that, that there's something attractive about your speech. Now, let me say up front, of course, this assumes positive volition. Uh, because remember that the Lord's speech, that, that, that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he came in hypostatic union, uh, that he was characterized by grace and truth. Sadly, the majority of those who saw and heard him rejected him. Uh, but it was not for want of grace on his part. And so really negative volition uh, will, will never accept grace, but that's just negative volition. But uh, as far as we are concerned, Paul says, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond 
to each person. And again, as I mentioned earlier, Paul uses the word caudus 130 times. Now, I've got some definitions here, and this is taken from uh, Badag, uh, which is the Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature. A lexicon is just a dictionary. Uh, Now, they can be a little pricey, but that's all they are. They're just a dictionary. And so grace here is defined, according to Badag, grace refers to, quote, a beneficent disposition towards someone. Favor, grace, gracious care or help or goodwill, end quote. Now this definition speaks of the attitude of one who is characterized by grace. It speaks of the attitude of one who is characterized by grace. And then another definition that goes along with that is that a gracious act is, quote, that which one grants to another, the action of one who volunteers to do something not otherwise obligatory, end quote. So again, it refers to that which one person grants to another, again, the action of one who volunteers to do something not otherwise obligatory, Now, Jesus is really the role model for grace. He is the example of grace. And we see his his, uh, graciousness toward others in that he cared for others. Uh, He healed. uh, We know where he healed and fed many. Uh, We think of in Mark 4, Matthew 4, 24. It says that news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all those who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Well, this is an expression of grace because really none of these people earned or deserved it. It's not a question of merit. In fact, what makes grace grace is the fact that it's unmerited, the fact that it's unearned, unwarranted. And it's really born out of the bounty and the goodness of the giver, the open-handedness of the giver, and is no way predicated upon the beauty or the worth of the object. Not at all, because we were not, we are not worthy. Uh, and it, you know, one of the things that drives me crazy, and I think the more you think in terms of grace, the more you realize, uh, one of the words that drives me crazy, when I'm listening to commercials and this sort of stuff, and they'll talk about, well, well we have this new car that you deserve, and that word drives me crazy when I hear that sort of stuff. Well, you, you deserve a new home. You deserve a vacation. You deserve, and I don't know why that just bugs me. It just rubs me wrong, you know. And, and I think, you know, marketers, I mean, they, they throw that sort of, sort of stuff out there because I think it appeals to human pride. Uh, but if you think in terms of grace, that language doesn't, doesn't resonate with you. And, uh, and so Jesus is an example of grace in that he cared for others, healing and feeding many, Uh, Even to those who refuse to show gratitude. (laughs) Even to those who refuse to show gratitude. And I think of the passage in Luke 17 where Jesus heals uh, ten leprous men. And it says in Luke 17, 12, it says, And he entered a village, as, as he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Uh, And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now, notice verse 15. Now, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed, but the nine? 
where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, stand up and go, your faith has made you well. Well, of course, as the Son of God, he's omniscient. He knows all things. He knows people's thoughts and words and actions before they commit them, before they do them. So Jesus knew well in advance. So his question wasn't for his sake. Uh, it was uh, more for the sake of the person who came and for his disciples who were standing nearby. It was for others. Uh, but Jesus healed them anyway, knowing that they would not understand and knowing that they would not return and show appreciation. By the way, common grace is that way, and we'll see that as well. We will see common grace where God extends grace to all humanity. It's the grace that he extends to everybody. And then there is a special grace that God extends uh, to the humble, to those who are willing to accept it. But we see where Jesus is the example of grace, even to those who refuse to show gratitude. And by the way, this should help us as well, because when we give something, we should give it uh, freely and open-handedly. It should not come with strings attached. And I know when I give something, I let go of it. And, uh, you know, whatever that person does with it, well, that's that at that point, you know, I don't have any say over it because I've I've released it at that point. Now, Jesus acted out of his own goodness for the benefit of others with a full knowledge, again, that the majority would reject him and abuse his kindness. Again, he did this uh, with the full knowledge. I, one of the key passages that has really jumped out at me, we, we taught through the Gospel of John. I taught through the Gospel of John verse by verse a few years ago. And uh, those were recorded. They're all up online on my website. Um, but this was one of two verses that really jumped out at me. The other one's John twelve thirty seven. But John twelve nineteen says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Now, that's an amazing thing to me. Because here is the perfect uh, revelation of God on full display. Uh, because he is God incarnate. He is the God-man. He is the theanthropic person. He is the second member of the Trinity who has come into the world in hypostatic union, which means he is undiminished deity combined together forever with perfect humanity. And everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did could not have been more perfectly said or more perfectly done than when he said it or when he did it, to whom he said it, in whatever context in which he said it. It was perfect. And yet... The majority of those who heard him and saw him rejected him. And it's not because of anything that was wrong with the revelation. Remember that at the heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. And when the heart is corrupt, and when the heart is operating on negative volition, then it doesn't matter how much revelation is there. People will suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that's what's going on in Romans 1.18 and following, where there's nothing wrong because God reveals himself through the creation, Paul says in Romans 1, such that he is clearly seen. There's no ambiguity there. He's clearly seen being understood through what has been made. Not only that, but he has revealed himself within them, okay, making himself known to them. And that revelation that goes on within each and every person is what is called in Latin the sensus divinitatis. And the sensus divinitatis is really the sense of the divine. It is that innate knowledge that a person has in which they come to the age of God consciousness and they know that God exists. 
Now, at the moment of God consciousness, one of two things are going to happen. That person is either going to go negative towards God, and if they go negative to God, then what happens is from that point on, they will suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's what's going on in Romans 1.18 and following. Now, God is a perfect gentleman. He doesn't bully anybody. He doesn't force himself on anybody. And if somebody rejects what light God has given them, he will, he will turn them over. And three times in Romans 1, it says God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. And God turned them over to their sinful ways, which comes with its own built-in form of judgment uh, in, in each of those examples. Uh, but what's interesting is that when they are suppressing the truth, there's nothing wrong with the truth. There's nothing wrong with the revelation because, again, at the heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. And when the heart is corrupt, as Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us, it's desperately sick. And who can know it? And so people then, when they go negative, they will suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Now, on the flip side to that, you have people who, at the point of God consciousness, uh, at some point may go positive to God. Now, they're going to start sending off uh, signals. And God knows who these people are. He knows those who are displaying positive volition. And when they begin to display positive volition, he then moves from general revelation to special revelation. And that's where God will send gospel information to that person so that they can hear clearly that Christ died for them, that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day. And that if they will place their faith in Christ and Christ alone, they can have eternal life, because that's all that's needed. And I think of the Philippian jailer in Acts 16.31, where he asked Paul and Silas, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answered very clearly. He said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And so that's all it takes, is faith alone in Christ alone. And so if somebody goes positive and wants to know it, then God will send gospel information to that person. And I've heard of people being saved all over the place. I heard about a guy who was fishing up in the mountains one time, looked down and there was a gospel track uh, wedged under a rock. And uh, he was curious as to what it was, picked it up, read it, and uh, believed in Christ. Well, he was positive. Now, somebody placed that gospel track there. But you see, that's providence. That's God working circumstantially to make sure that, that the right people, those who are positive, hear the right information at the time when they need to hear it. Because God does not leave anybody in the lurch. He, God doesn't fail. God cannot fail. It's impossible. And so when a person goes positive to God and wants to know, God will get them gospel information, wherever they happen to be, uh, all over the planet. And so it doesn't matter. God will uh, open doors for missionaries. He will open the door for Bibles. He will open the door for all sorts of information to get through. Because God, uh, you can't stop him, okay? And so if somebody's positive and they want to know, it'll get through. But on the flip side of that, just like uh, John three nineteen, that here is the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. Now, listen, Jesus doesn't go around ramming, cramming, and jamming information down people's throats. If they don't want to hear it, he'll turn them over. In fact, he tells the disciples that, the apostles that, in Matthew 10. He says, look, when you go out, preach, and if they receive you, fine. If they don't, shake the dust off your feet and move on. Uh, go to other territory. Do not stick around there. Okay, and so if somebody's negative, I, look, and I don't argue with people. I don't argue with people. Somebody tells me they don't want to hear the gospel. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26 clearly states, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, and with gentleness. 
correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. But again, clearly, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, and with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. And I'm not going to sit and argue with people. Now, I'll give people a clear presentation, and I'm not shy about it. I mean, there's people at work. I mean, they'll tell you, I, I talk scripture. I mean, if you know me, if you're around me for more than five minutes, I, I'm, Steve's going to put some scripture somewhere in the conversation. And sometimes it takes people a while to figure me out. i got some unbelievers I work with. They're very nice, very lovely people. But they scratch their heads. Like we were having a conversation here not too long ago. And we were talking about somebody who was operating on a partial bit of information, but made a snap judgment. And it was wrong. They had false, they had partial information, and what they had was partly false. But they bought it. They, they, they latched onto it. And all of a sudden, they had this emotional flair. And their emotions got all fired up. And they were all fired up about something. Well, they didn't have enough information. Well, I'm sitting in this group and we're talking and there's, you know, different people. And finally, I just said, you know, I said, it reminds me of Proverbs 18, 13, which says, he who answers before he hears to him, it is folly and shame. And I said, so it kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it? That to him who answers before he hears all the facts, well, speaks for itself. To him, it is folly and shame. And of course, they're all sitting around staring at me and we're having a blinking contest for about three or four seconds while everybody's trying to process and figure out what just happened. And it kind of throws people off, but that's all right. Uh, people get used to me after a while, but that's where you, know, you, you interject that sort of stuff. And then I'll just move on, keep on in the conversation. I was the one who had to break the ice because we were sitting there in silence and it was just kind of awkward. Anyway, but, but there are some people who love the darkness. John 12, 37 says, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing. Though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing. And it just goes to show that seeing is not believing. Because here's Jesus who performs all these signs and wonders, and people still didn't believe. Because again, at the heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. And, and it doesn't matter how much truth you put out there. If Jesus were to stand in front of these people every day for eight hours a day and speak perfect truth to them and perform miracle after miracle every day for a thousand years, at the end of that time, they would still not believe because it's an issue of the heart. It's not an issue of revelation. It's not an issue of truth. There's nothing wrong with the truth. There's nothing wrong with God's revelation. It's at the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And so I keep getting back to that. Well, no, let me not chase too many rabbit trails. Let's get back to the notes here. So we're talking about grace. Now, I've highlighted this section here because I bet I worked on this paragraph for probably a couple hours. Uh, but let's go ahead and read through it. Now, others may not understand or accept what is offered by grace. But again, this is not for want of a gracious attitude or action on the part of the giver. Where the benefactor freely confers a blessing upon another and the kindness shown finds its source in the bounty and free-heartedness of the giver. You see, it's all about the source. It's all about the attitude of the giver who gives freely in grace. And it's really about, and again, there are some people that will receive grace and go their whole life and never understand it. Now listen, grace is infinite in scope, but grace is not eternal in its duration. 
It's not. And grace is only needed because we live in a fallen world. In heaven, we're not going to need grace. But even during one's lifetime on this earth, you have grace. Every day you wake up, you enjoy the sunshine, you take a breath, you get in your car, you go to work, you enjoy a good meal, you enjoy your family, your freedom, your home, whatever it is that you enjoy. And then, but if you keep rejecting Christ, if you keep rejecting Christ, if you keep suppressing that divine revelation and you don't want to hear the gospel, you keep rejecting Christ, at the end of your life, at the moment of death, grace comes to an end. And at that moment, all of life's decisions are fixed for all eternity. And there's only one decision that determines your eternal destiny, and that's the decision of what did you do with Christ. That is the most important decision that a person can make in their life, is to trust in Christ as their Savior, because everything else pales in comparison. Now, for some unbelievers, uh, this, is, this is the only heaven they'll ever know, because what follows is hell. Now, for some Christians, this is the only hell we'll ever know, because what follows for us is heaven. Now, once grace it is received, it can, in turn, lead to gracious acts to others. And, in other words, grace leads to grace. I love in, in 1 John 4, where John says, we love because he first loved us. You see that? So we receive the love of God, and when one receives the love of God and welcomes the love of God, love will naturally flow outward to others. We love. Why? Because he first loved us. And so as we receive love, love flows naturally. It's a very, it's a very natural expression. And the same is true with grace. For the one who welcomes the grace of God and really understands the grace of God, they tend to be very gracious with other people. And sometimes the more undeserving a person is, the more gracious the act. And I extend grace all the time when I'm going down the highway and some Yahoo, you know, drives past me 105 miles an hour and then cuts me off and, you know, and I've got to slow down or whatever. I just, I, I, and I can sit there, I can get all fired up. I think of Proverbs 19:11. it's to the glory of a man to overlook an offense. So I try to let that circulate in the stream of my consciousness, but I say grace to you. And there's another guy, grace to you, grace. And I, you know, you try to extend as much grace as you can. Uh, Matthew 5, uh, 43 to 45. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, that was the, that was the value system from the Pharisees. Jesus rejects that. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love. Love your enemies. There's that verb, agapao. Now, that's not emotion. This is not emotion. This is not emotional love. This is this love means that we seek God's best in the life of another person. And in this case, it has to do with our enemies. And I used to wrestle with this. 30 years ago when I was young in the faith and I was still cutting my teeth uh, theologically speaking, I wrestled with this because I, th- I used to think it was a feeling. I used to think, okay, God, well, how, how am I going to conjure up some warm, fuzzy feeling for some guy who hates me and has hurt me and continues to hate me and probably going to hurt me again? And I wrestled with it because I didn't know how I could do that. But this verse is not telling you to conjure up a warm, fuzzy feeling. That's not what it means. That's not what it means. It means that we seek God's best in the life of another person. And Jesus tells us how to do that. He says, love your enemies and pray for them. Prayer is an expression of love because you're praying for them. Okay? But when you display this kind of attitude towards your enemies, that's grace. Uh, Verse 45 says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. In other words, that you may demonstrate that, that, that you are acting like God. Because how does God treat you? He treats you in grace. 
And notice here he says, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see, that's grace. That's called common grace. And it's the grace that he extends to all humanity. All humanity. Uh, Luke 6.32 is following. Jesus says here, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. You see, that's a reciprocal form of human love. By the way, this is where I get confused because you see here the word credit. Interestingly enough, that's the Greek word kodos. And that's where I scratch my head sometimes at some of this stuff. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For, those, uh, for even sinners love, love, uh, love those who love them. And he says, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? In other words, what, what grace is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Now, the way I understand this is basically saying, look, if you're going to act like the unbelieving world, that's not grace. If you're going to act like the unbelieving world, that's not caught us. That's not grace. And that's basically what he's saying here. And so grace is, is, is in its own unique category. He says in verse 34, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? In other words, that's not grace. Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. Here's grace. Verse 35, love your enemies. You see, that's grace. Do they earn, do they earn or deserve that? No, but you love because of who you are, not because of who they are. That's love, that's grace. And do good, that's grace. And lend, expecting nothing in return, that's grace. And he says, and your reward will be great and you will be called sons of the Most High. Notice, he himself is, is kind to who? To ungrateful and, un, and evil people. You see, that's grace. And this is the common grace that we are to extend to others. But again, once grace is received, and, 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 and I always tell people, listen, Take your time learning about the grace of God, because the more you understand that, the more it will change your disposition, your perspective on things, and grace will naturally begin to flow more easily once you've understood and received grace. Now, in this way, again, grace leads to grace. And, of course, the greatest expression of grace is observed in the love of God, uh, who uh, in the love God shows towards undeserving sinners for whom he sent his son to die in their place so that we might have eternal life. 1 John 3, 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God and such we are. And that, that is love. We didn't ask for it. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. Listen, if we got what we earned and deserved, we'd all be dead and damned. But we have forgiveness of sins. Why? Because God is gracious to us. We have eternal life. Why? Because God is gracious to us. And we continue to take another breath. Why? Because God continues to be gracious to us. And everyone needs grace. Everyone needs grace because we are all born in sin. We are sinners in Adam. We are sinners by nature. And we are sinners by choice. And of course, Adam's sin is in the Garden of Eden is the first and greatest of them all. Because of Adam's rebellion against God, sin and death entered into the human race and spread throughout the whole universe. And you do realize the whole universe is contaminated by what happened in the Garden of Eden. Romans 8.20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free 
from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans. That's the whole universe. The sin that Adam committed, in effect, resonated throughout the whole known universe such that in order for God to finally deal with sin in the final analysis, he must literally destroy the heavens. That is the whole universe and the earth, and he must create a new heavens and a new earth because the current whole creation groans. People don't think about the implications or the ramifications of the effect of what happened in the Garden of Eden because that introduction to sin literally contaminated everything, everything. And we see the effects of that, and people don't realize how damaging the effects of sin are. Oh, we see it on a personal level, but, but we really don't understand it on, on the big scale. Now, all of Adam's descendants are born into this world spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. We are by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3 tells us. Uh, Ephesians 2.12 says we are separate from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. Colossians 1.21 says we are alienated from God. Romans 5, 6 through 10 says we are helpless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies of God. That's not a very flattering view. And by the way, when one understands the gospel, one understands that the gospel is the solution to a problem. It's the answer to a question. It's the solution to a problem. But if you don't present the problem first, then the death of Christ doesn't really make sense to people. People don't understand the value of it. They don't understand why they need it. And the problem is twofold, basically, and that is that God is holy and righteous and mankind is sinful. Now, that's not a problem for God to be holy and righteous. The problem is that uh, being holy and righteous, he can only do one thing with sin, and that is to condemn it. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure uh, to look upon sin. You cannot uh, to, uh, to look upon wickedness. You cannot look upon uh, wickedness with favor. God cannot approve of it. He cannot. And yet mankind is sinful. We are quite adept at producing sin. The problem is we can't deal with it. We can no more produce, uh, we can no more deal with the problem of sin than we can jump across the Grand Canyon or throw rocks and hit the moon. We're not going to do it. Impossible. But see, this is what makes the cross so beautiful because at the cross, God accomplished what we cannot. He solved the problem of sin. And when we understand that the cross and what Jesus did on the cross is the only solution to the problem of sin, then we can come to the cross with the empty hands of faith and we can come and trust in Christ and Christ alone because man needs only Christ to be saved. No one else, nothing more. Now, from a biblical perspective, we are all born totally depraved. And according to Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, who was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, he says, quote, theologians employ all also the phrase total depravity, which does not mean that there is nothing good in any unregenerate person as seen by himself or other people. It means that there is nothing in fallen man which God can find pleasure in or accept, end quote. Total depravity means that we are corrupted by sin and completely helpless to, salt to save ourselves. God's grace does not, ex does not ignore righteousness or judgment, by the way. You see, God is righteous and he must condemn sin. Now, he can, either condemn it in, he can either condemn sin in the sinner or he can condemn it in a substitute. And according to Merrill F. Unger, who uh, wrote the Unger's Bible Dictionary, and uh, from where I'm driving, deriving this quote, a good book to have if you don't have it for your library, I do recommend it. 
But he says, quote, since God is holy and righteous and sin is a complete offense to him, his love or his mercy cannot operate in grace until there is provided a sufficient satisfaction for sin. This satisfaction makes possible the exercise of God's grace, end quote. Now, somebody a few years back, and it may have been John Stott, if I remember correctly, but he came up with, and he used grace as an acronym, for God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. In other words, God can, can, the riches of God can flow quite freely at, because Christ has borne our sin upon the cross, because he paid the price for our sin. And so it's God's riches towards us at Christ's expense. Christ paid for it. And now it's given to us freely. You see, Christ is our substitute. He bore the penalty of all our sins and satisfied every righteous demand of the Father. 1 John 2, 2 tells us that he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Propitiation, that's a word we're going to come to here in the near future. From the Greek noun halosmos, and the word means satisfaction. It means God is never satisfied with any good works that we do as though somehow as, as if they have some salvific value to them. They don't. Because remember that all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag in God's sight. But God is satisfied with one thing and one thing only, and that's the death of Christ. He's propitiated uh, because of, he's satisfied because of what Christ accomplished at the cross. And I remember years ago listening to the lectures by Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer. There's about 18 lectures of his uh, where he's teaching a seminary course at Dallas Seminary. I think it's back in like 1948, 49. And they're very rich. If you can, if you can catch those lectures uh, by Dr. Chafer and listen to them, they're, they're, they're quite valuable. Um, but uh, Dr. Chafer loves, loved the word propitious. He, he loved that word, propitiation. He loved that word because that was very, it had great personal significance for him. Now, going on in the notes here, according to Lewis Chafer, he says, quote, Grace is what God may be free to do, and indeed what he does accordingly for the lost after, after Christ has died on their behalf, end quote. You see how he's capturing that same thing, how he's bringing the cross into the issue. He's bringing in what Christ did for us at the cross, because we're looking at grace, even though we could look at it from a hundred different angles, we're looking at grace from a soteriological perspective. You see, I'm keeping this somewhat narrow. I'm broadening out a little bit because I can't help myself. I chase rabbit trails. It's what I do. Uh, but we're keeping this somewhat narrow because we're talking about grace as it relates to salvation. You see, God's love for sinners moved him to provide a solution to the problem of sin, and that solution is Christ who died in our place. And once we have trusted in Christ for salvation and trusted in him alone, then God then bestows on us forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and many blessings. You see, Acts 10.43 says of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives what? Forgiveness of sins. Now, Christ died for everybody. That's called unlimited atonement. But the benefits of the cross are applied only to those who believe. And when you believe, you receive, at that moment, the judicial forgiveness of sins. Past, present, and future, they're all taken care of. And we receive uh, eternal life, John 10, 28, where Jesus says, And I give eternal life to them, and they'll never perish. 
And we receive many other blessings. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And that refers to that portfolio of spiritual assets that belongs to the Christian at the moment of faith in Christ. And we talked about that a few lessons back. Now, for those who reject God's salvation by grace... They are left to trust in, them, in themselves and their own good works to gain entrance into heaven. And this will fail miserably for those who elect this course. And it really is a choice because people choose or either for or against Christ. They choose for or against Christ. The choice is ultimately the ball's in their court as to whether or not they will turn to Christ or not. Now, I think of in John chapter 5, verse 39, I was having a very good theological discussion with a friend of mine the other day, and we were talking about John uh, chapter 5, verse 39 and 40, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now, clearly, he's talking about eternal life. He's talking about what is needed uh, from God for us to have that life that qualifies us to get into heaven. And he says, it is these, that is the scriptures that testify about me. But notice verse 40, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. That is eternal life. Where does the problem lie? In the heart of the person who is unwilling to come to Christ. He says, and you are unwilling. Well, that by itself implies that eternal life is available to them. Otherwise, the statement is superfluous. It's absolutely meaningless, you see. But he says, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. And so if a person goes to the lake of fire, it's not because God didn't provide a way for salvation. It's not because God somehow failed to make a provision. It's that the person chose not to receive it. Because remember, God is a perfect gentleman. He doesn't force this on anybody. If somebody wants it, they accept it freely. It's a gift. It's called grace. But for those who, who, who turn away from Christ in the end, these will be judged by their works. And because their works never measure up to God's perfect righteousness, they will be cast into the lake of fire forever. Now, there is a common grace that God extends to everyone, whether they are good or evil. God simply extends grace to all and all receive it. Jesus said of the Father that he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Paul said in Acts 14, verse 16 and 17, that in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. That is in rebellion. You see, that's negative volition. That he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good. Notice that. He did good and he gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with gladness. That's grace. That, none of these people deserve this, and yet God, God gives them these blessings because of who he is. Now, again, he, this doesn't run forever because at death all of life's decisions are fixed. But that doesn't stop God from being good and giving these people rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and even satisfying their hearts with food and gladness. God does this because of who God is and not because of the beauty or worth of the object. In these passages, God's grace is freely given to all, and this because he is gracious by nature. There is also a special grace given to those who will welcome it. Special grace refers to those blessings that God freely confers upon those who in humility turn to him in a time of need. 
First, there is the saving grace. This is the grace that God provides for the lost sinner who turns to Christ in faith alone. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It, that is your salvation, is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so this is received by grace. This is salvation by grace. This is special grace. Second, there is growing grace for the humble believer who studies and lives by God's word. Second Peter 3.18, Peter says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's how we grow, because we need to grow in knowledge, but we need to grow in grace, because grace continues. You think after you're saved that you're somehow sweet and lovely and wonderful and some saint, you're not going to sin anymore, and you got it all straightened out? No. That takes years. Years. And I would argue you really don't begin to see spiritual maturity in the life of a believer until somewhere around a thousand hours of study. And not just study, but application. You really have to begin to live out the word of God. And then, because you need grace all the way to the end of your life, you need grace. That never stops. Third, there is also the grace that God gives, which is a divine enablement to help a believer cope with some life stress. Paul, when facing a difficulty, cried out to the Lord. Remember his thorn in the flesh? And he cried out to the Lord three times and said, take it away. And God answered, and he said, he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for powers perfected in weakness. Now, Paul prayed for his, his problem to go away, and that's fine. It's fine. Listen, if you've got a problem, it's fine for, for you to pray to God to take away your problem. That's fine. But God doesn't always take away your pain. And what God does not remove, he intends for you to deal with. Because at the end of the day, God is more concerned with your Christian character than he is with your creaturely comforts. And there are times where he will send you through the furnace of affliction to burn away the dross of weak character in order to refine the golden qualities that he wants to see in you. Now you can rest assured that any time God puts his hand on the thermostat, whenever any time God turns up the heat, he never takes his hand off the thermostat. He's always in control of what's going on. And you just have to learn to live by faith. And so Paul, in wisdom, said, All right, Lord, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell upon me. You see, Paul learned to be content with his weaknesses. And so this was a divine enablement. This was grace that enabled him to cope with the suffering. Humility and positive volition are necessary requisites for those who would receive God's special grace. According to 1 Peter 5, 5, that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And here he's talking to believers, by the way. If you ever read 1 Peter 5, context, context, context tells you he's talking to believers. And so when it says that God is opposed to the proud, he's talking about the proud believer. Because are some believers arrogant? Yes. But he gives grace to the humble. Now, God's saving grace is never cheap, and we should understand that. Our salvation is very costly. Jesus went to the cross and died in our place and bore the punishment that rightfully belongs to us. He is righteous. We are lost sinners. He paid our sin debt in full. There's nothing for us to add to what he accomplished. The sole condition of salvation is to believe in Christ as our Savior. He died for us, was buried, and rose again on the third day. And Romans 6, 9 tells us that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. 
Salvation is not Jesus plus anything we do. It's Jesus alone. He saves. Our contribution to the cross was sin and death. As Jesus took our sin upon himself and died in our place. Peter tells us that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. So that he might bring us to God. Because you're not going to get to God any other way. Man needs only Christ. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. We are brought to God solely by the death of Christ. His shed blood on the cross made the way possible. Uh, Salvation is never what we do for God. Rather, it's what he's done for us through the cross of Christ. And all of this is consistent with the character of God, for he is gracious by nature. Exodus 34, 6 tells us that the Lord, the Lord God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 86.15, You, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and, abound, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. 1 Peter 5.10 describes God as the God of all grace. Hebrews 4.16 tells us that he sits upon a throne of grace. Proverbs 3.34 says he gives grace to the afflicted. And Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says he, that he provides salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. Jesus himself in John 1.14 is said to be full of grace and truth. And the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Grace in Hebrews 10.29. You see how grace flows from all three members of the Godhead. Now in our closing paragraph here, in order for us to be reconciled to God, we must simply trust in Jesus as our Savior. You see, again, man needs only Christ to be saved. And salvation is never what we do for God. It's what he's done for us through the person and the work of Christ. And if we could save ourselves, then Christ would have never had to have come and died. But his death is a testimony of the fact of this thing which we cannot do. When we trust in Christ as our Savior, again, we are forgiven all of our sins, given eternal life, and received the gift of righteousness. We receive the very righteousness of God as a gift. And again, this is all by grace. And so I would encourage you, this is just a brief overview, and again, we're looking at grace in a narrow way because we're looking at it as it relates to soteriology. But I would encourage you to read Dr. Chafer's book on grace, Ryrie's book on grace, and there's a few others out there as well, but those two come to mind readily. All right, so that is going to close out our lesson tonight on the subject of grace. Now next week when we pick up, we're going to talk about guilt. Guilt, that's, that's our next Uh, doctrinal word that we're going to look at as it relates to biblical soteriology. All right. Um, Do we have any questions over tonight's lesson? Any questions over tonight's lesson? I know I covered a lot of material, and sometimes when I'm I'm rocking through this, I get to talking a little fast, so uh, uh, if you have something, you'll have to throw it out there. Uh, Winnie. Winnie. Sorry. Winnie, you had a question? Uh, it, it's Judd. Hey, Judd. Um, I, I was just going to say, um, I think your statement about the sin nature really being antithetic, antithetical to grace is so true because people just really don't want to accept that it's nothing that 
you did to deserve it, mm-hmm. right? They want to think in your, your comment about dessert, like McDonald's, right? That's the most famous commercial ever. You deserve a break uh, today. Yes, you deserve it. that's right. Love that. Thank you. Yeah. I, I had, uh, we were witnessing to someone one time, not for the first time, and they said, I know you people think that you're going to heaven because you've believed in Jesus Christ, but I'm not going that way. I'm going because of what I've done. Whoa. So. Wow. I, I just, I think people, and that's why you have Calvinism and Arminianism uh-huh. too, is because they just can't accept that, no, you didn't do anything for it. You know, you don't have to have works that prove, you know, that you've believed. And, you know, you can't do any works that would cause you to lose your salvation. It's just all based on what Jesus has done. People just do not want to accept that. It's so antithetical to the sin nature. Amen. Agree with that 100%. Yeah, it really ruffles the feathers of pride. And I think that's why humility is so necessary when one comes to understand the issue of the cross. Absolutely. John, you were going to say something? Um, we we belong to a Facebook group, and you you had a post, and the question came up about um, the, the ones that haven't heard in other in other countries. And oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, there are people even who are so bold as to say that God would be unfair if He condemned people without it, them actually hearing the gospel and getting a chance to respond to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I tried explaining. You know, from my point of view, I just wanted to hear yours that, you know, if they're not responding to the basic revelation of creation, that they're not going, you know, if they distort that or don't believe that, that they're not going to respond positively to the gospel or they're not likely to either. And the question is, is there salvation apart from Christ, I think, is what it comes down to. And Yeah. You know, it gets to be a tough question because of infants and stuff, too, but just wondering your thoughts on it. Yeah, and we're going to get on infants here in the near future. Uh, when a person comes to the point of God consciousness, and I think Paul makes this very clear in Romans 1, 18 and following, because he has revealed himself through the creation and within each person such that general revelation uh, is sufficient to condemn a person. And Colonel Theme talks about this in Heathenism, and other books do a good job on it as well. But it's basically the point that if a person comes to the point of God consciousness and goes negative and rejects what light God has given them through the creation, at that point they are then responsible, morally culpable for their life from that day on. And uh, the issue is, is that God at that point is under no obligation to give them any further light. Now, people may hear other light. They may actually hear the gospel. They may actually receive that special revelation. Uh, But God is not under any obligation to give them that because they've rejected what light he has already given them through the creation and within themselves, you know, per the census divinitatis. So I would argue, and I would agree with you, that that really you're not saved any other way apart from Christ. But if a person goes positive to God, if they start sending off positive signals, God will make sure that person gets gospel information. Now, the exceptions to that would be people who uh, suffer from IDD issues, the new term for mental retardation, intellectual and deficit disorder. Uh, Everybody has to rebrand everything, but that's the new terminology these days called IDD. Or children. When children die, they immediately go to heaven. They are granted special grace. Now, those are the exceptions because they are not going to be culpable 
uh, for their life because they haven't had the, the point to reach the age of God consciousness. And one of the things that, that Colonel Thiem talked about before, and I thought it was quite interesting, I hadn't really thought about it before, but of course he always brings a slant that you just generally don't think about things for. But even he went so far as to say that some cultures, because they are so pagan, that a person may not even come to the point of God consciousness until they're 18, 19, 20 years of age. And that's assuming normal cognitive function. Uh, but that's because they live in such a pagan culture where, where there's so much uh, spiritual darkness there that their developmental process may be greatly delayed as a matter of their uh, society and culture at large because it is so pagan. And I would, I would tend to agree with that. I think there's merit to that. Um, and, uh, but yes, John, I think that one needs Christ to be saved. And I do not believe that there is salvation outside of Christ. Uh, let's see. Um, Susan, you had your hand up too. Did you have a question? Stephanie, you had a question too. Oh, wait a minute. Susan? I'm sorry. Okay. I have two sisters, one of which is a believer, and the uh, oldest one is not a, not a believer. She's 75 and in very good shape. However, I have tried witnessing to her on a number of occasions, and she, she politely listens, but you can tell that she is not wanting to hear it. And she rejects it. She'll say, "Well, yeah, the, I don't, I don't know, I don't believe that." And and so it's very hard to hear that, you know, if, if this person doesn't accept Christ before they die, and she's seventy-five, you know, it's it's very hard for me. Yes, my heart so goes out I to you. I just pray that someone else that she's more likely to listen to will give yeah. the gospel. Yeah, I my heart goes out to you. I feel the same way. I have an older brother and a younger brother, and one of my one of my older brothers. I have several, but one of them is a died, hardcore Jehovah's Witness. And we have had some. We've had lots of conversations, and I've shared the gospel a number of times. And it just, I mean, it just met with a closed door every time. Now. I find encouragement at least in planting seeds because because you never know. I mean, there may be that final conversion that happens, you know, at the moment when they're approaching death. You think of the thief on the cross. I mean, talk about cutting it close. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, you know, it's just like, I mean, he says, you know, remember. Well, I don't me- give up. I don't no. give up. Yeah. It's, it's very hard to be with her because right. she's, she's my sister, so I love her. And she's my family, and it's just, and I, I believe, and I don't understand how she can't, and it just, it, yeah, it's very, very hard. Yeah. Pray more than you talk. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That is the truth. Hmm. We're good. Joe. Joe Albert. Oh, Joe, you had a, you had a question or comment, buddy? Yeah. Thank you for tonight. It was a really good study. Um, I was in uh, Luke chapter 6, the last half of Luke chapter 6, um, earlier this morning, studying for tomorrow. And nice. Hmm. You brought up Luke 6 today. It, it uh, seems like it, There, I saw the focus in Luke 6 this morning, and mostly of us expressing love towards others, and hmm. especially those who, you know, hate us or, or our enemies, and, and, uh, and your study tonight 
seems like there's a connection between um, you know how gr we act gracious to others well how do we do that it's it's expressing love to them yeah yeah and that's 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 not easy um, yeah and and I know for me to learn to grow in that and to to uh, be gracious to others and to be loving towards others I, you know it's it, it's always best for me to start my day with to starting off thinking about God's love and grace to me and if I spend some time, and I usually do because I pray for my 22 to 25 minute drive into work. And as I, during that time, I have a set pattern of things and people that I pray for. You know, I pray for Israel, I pray for our country, I pray for leaders and so on. But there's always that time where I am just going to, just as a matter of habit, give thanks to God. I just, I, I start that morning, and I actually learned this from my grandmother when I was a little boy. And that is just starting each day with an attitude of gratitude. And when I begin to thank God, I thank God for his goodness, for his love, for his kindness, for his grace, for his blessings. And I think about that within the context of how much I don't deserve that. And, you know, for me, you know, I, I reference my past on a number of occasions because that's such a stark turning point for me when I was in drugs and homeless and, and then went to prison for several years. That's, that's always such a, a key point in my life. And, and in one sense, I don't want to lose that. You know, it's interesting to me that five times in his writings, five times the Apostle Paul mentions his former life in Judaism and how he persecuted the church. And he brought that up over and over and over and over because for him, it represented the state of his fallenness and just what kind of person he was. And he saw himself as the chief of sinners. He was, he was a numero uno. You know, in his mind, he, he, was, he was the big honcho, big dog, you know. And, uh, and so he brings that up over and over again because for him it was such a key point, a contrast, that really makes grace become so pronounced. And for me that was the same thing. And so, you know, when I, when I go through my drive in the morning, it's usually me kind of reminiscing and thinking about where I came from and how God plucked me from the ash heap of my own ruin and lifted me up and gave me grace and a pardon and love and kindness and a wife and a home and oh my goodness, and just all the blessings he's bestowed upon me. You know, I dropped out of school in the 10th grade, and yet he graced me out and allowed me to get a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, a doctorate, you know, and, and you know, an opportunity to teach and write. And, of course, I work a full-time job, so my ministry is all as a volunteer, but even that's the grace of God, and I thank him for that. But But having that time, and I say that because when I really begin to enjoy and think about the love of God and the grace of God towards me, it sets my mind for the day so that when I walk into work, when I'm driving on the highway, I tend to be, I tend to have much more of a mindset of love and grace towards others uh, because I've because I've ruminated on that because I've enjoyed that and that has become a pattern for me and, I, and I'll say this in closing when I think about the Christian life it really is to a large degree a discipline and if one is going to be successful at anything in life one has to have a measure of discipline discipline of mind discipline of time discipline of action and uh, you know I think of 2 Corinthians 10 5 where we are bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and having that discipline of, of time of prayer and even patterns of thought during those times of prayer, I think, becomes very, very important. But being able to think about these things like love and grace, and these are, these are doctrines that I think coalesce, that come together very much in a complementary way, uh, and sometimes that you don't always differentiate the two. Um, but yeah, that passage in Luke is, uh, is very, very insightful. 
And it's because we have tasted of the love of God that we then are to love others, to pray for them and to do good. And again, this is born out of, out of a gracious heart because we have enjoyed the grace of God. So anyway, I hope I didn't go too far in my answer, but thank you for that, Joe. I appreciate that. That is all. Thank you. You bet. Thank right. you so much for the teaching tonight. Oh, thanks, Carol. I appreciate thank that. You. Yeah. All right, everybody. Well, let's close it out with a word of prayer, shall we? Dear Father, we thank you so much that we can call you Father, and we call you Father for one reason and one reason only. And that is because you have sent your Son into the world. And he came and he lived an absolutely righteous life, and he went to the cross and died a death he did not deserve, in order that we might have a life that we could never earn. And Father, we are so thankful for that which you have accomplished for us, and we have come to Christ, and Christ alone is our Savior. And we have believed upon him, knowing that he died for us, was buried and raised again on the third day, never to die again. And we have trusted in him as our Savior. We have turned from everything and everyone and cast ourselves and trusted completely in Christ and Christ alone. And for that reason, we have been brought into the family of God and we can be called your children. And we thank you for the blessings that you bestowed upon us. We thank you for this time of freedom, and that we can set this time aside to study your word. Father, we just pray this evening as we go forth that we will be challenged by the things that we study, that we might grow thereby. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.